On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about McMaster's plan to go online in the fall. Sean Van Kunit, who is the Dean of Students, will join us to discuss what this means to the university, what this means to you if you're going there, because there are a lot of repercussions to this decision. We're also going to be talking about whether or not the government should stop giving away money to everybody and start loaning money to people. You know, they can pay it back. You'll still have it, but you could pay it back. Would that be a better idea? And then Don Robertson will also be talking with us, ironically, about money, NHL playoffs, money, baseball players fighting over money. It's all about money. We'll talk about it. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. A couple weeks ago, maybe three, uh, I had my first guest on tonight to discuss what McMaster was doing to prepare for the possibility of a fall semester entirely off campus, an all online semester. And he outlined what the plans were at that time as a safety measure, as a safety valve, just in case. Well, today that became a reality. The school's president posted a letter on the university's website this afternoon announcing that this would indeed be the case. The first semester starting in the fall for McMaster will be when I say all online, I know there are some exceptions in some ways. We'll get into that in just a moment, but is going to essentially be an all online semester of university. What does this mean? There's a lot of repercussions to this. Sean Van Kuna joins us again. He is McMaster's Associate Vice President of Students and Learning and the Dean of Students. He joins me now. Sean, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me again. No, I appreciate you doing this uh, because I'm thinking as I was preparing to talk to you that universities are big and they are complicated. And I have to think this is about a migraine level issue to try and sort through at this point, even if you did prepare some in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it certainly occupied uh, uh, the entire leadership team's uh, time, seven days a week, long days. Uh, it, it is a complex organization, but I think I have to say we are uh, as prepared at this point in the year as we possibly can be, and and people are working extremely hard to be ready for the fall. Let us go through, because as I say, there's a lot of stuff I want to get to because there are a lot of um, effects of this, and we won't be able to hit on all of them, I guarantee it, but we'll do our best to hit on some of the big ones. Um, If I understand correctly from the letter, the campus will be all but shut down. Is that correct? I mean, almost every class will be online. All the, all, the, all the classes will be online. We're, we're trying to minimize the, the activity on campus as much as possible. The campus will not be shut down. There will still be uh, some uh, research activities uh, occurring. Some labs are open. Uh, we have a nuclear reactor, of course, which we're not uh, shutting down. Um, there will be limited numbers of students in residence. We don't know precisely how many yet. Uh, and therefore, there will still be uh, there still be some food operations uh, uh, that will still be operational in the fall. So we're not shut down, but certainly we're trying to minimize exposure and risk and keep as many people off campus as possible. And as many people as possible, we will continue to work from home. You mentioned labs. Um, this is obviously one of the questions that a lot of people have. My daughter just graduated from nursing. And when I mentioned this, she goes, I couldn't have done it without being on campus and having hands on in some cases. What about courses that medical or other science that require you to be doing hands-on learning? What happens with them? Yeah, so I'm not going to try to get into the detail of those programs because I'm not intimately involved in how they're, they're looking at, at programs. But 
there still will be some uh, the on uh, or the hands-on components. And actually, so for first-year students, the only exception to uh, the rule in this case is nursing, uh, where the rest of the programs, there's no requirement to be on campus, but nursing is an exception. So um, as much as possible, we're limiting uh, limiting the activity that, that will require any in-person work. And, uh, but the health professions uh, are, uh, are an exception. And, and so certainly they're working through how they can uh, abide by the public health guidance, minimize uh, uh, health and safety risk, and still deliver an excellent educational experience for our students. Are the professors at this point um, ready to teach this way, or are you anticipating that we have three months here before the fall would start? That will give us enough time to get ready. Well, certainly there's a lot of work to do between now and the fall. Uh, you know, between, between mid-March and the end of April, there was a sprint to, to figure out how to get our spring and summer courses online, and, and that's, that's been accomplished. So the fall, we do have three months. There, there is a ton of work to be done. I know that instructors in the academic units are working feverishly on that. We also have a, a unit called the McPherson Institute, which is um, a unit that, that supports uh, our efforts around excellence in teaching and learning. So they're uh, supporting all, all of the efforts of the instructors to put things into a virtual and online and remote format. But there is a lot of work to be done over the next three months, that's for sure. So does that mean that it will be a standard style teaching or would each professor have the option of whether they want to do a video course or a Zoom type course or just put all the material online? Like, is it up to them or is there an expectation they'll all do something standard? Well, as you can imagine, in a university environment, um, there will be variation uh, depending on the nature of the content that's being delivered and the, the, the instructors and the programs will determine uh, what the most effective way is for delivering that content. So it certainly won't be a one-size-fits-all uh, situation. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Sean, when, we, when you were on here a couple of weeks ago, when we were chatting, you were discussing the Archway program that you guys had built to try and it was supposed to do a number of things and people can go back and listen to that or they can look online to the McMaster website to see about your Archway program. But one of the big things, as I understand it, that was trying to do was connect, especially incoming potential first year students to the university, feel connected in large measure so they wouldn't defer, I guess. So they, when they get their acceptance that they would enroll. Has the, are you getting a sense that that is the case? Because I keep hearing a lot of students and a lot of families saying, if I'm not going to be on campus and I'm going to miss my first year of university, I'll, I'll wait a year and come back when it's normal. Yeah, I mean, there's, there are different things that we're hearing. And actually, one of the, one of the things we're hearing is, is that uh, students and, and parents especially are uh, thankful that the health risk is, is being minimized and that they're going to be able to actually start their education um, uh, without worrying about the disruption that many think will happen in the fall if we experience a second wave. Uh, so this program was, it's not going to replace the face-to-face, -face. Nothing, nothing will. But this, we know that it's important for especially students coming from high school to connect with each other, to have mentors that they can count on, uh, and people around them that are going to be able to direct them to supports and give them advice when they need it. And that's really what the Archway program is meant to do. So every single first-year student right now, we're anticipating there'll be around 6,000 of them, will be connected in a cohort of about 29 other, uh, other peers. They'll be connected with an upper-year student who's a mentor. 
and there will be a professional staff who oversees groups of these mentors. So it's, it's very similar to the structure we have within residence, except you're not physically in a residence. And so we feel that that's really going to provide a sense of community and support that our first-year students need. I heard someone say today, and in fact, I, I, I heard, I just saw something posted on uh, Twitter or Facebook or somewhere in the last few minutes asking, well, if we can't be on campus and can't have the full first year student experience, despite what Mac is trying to do, um, mm-hmm. is there going to be a reduction in tuition for first year students for the first year to, you know, to make up for that loss of anything? Has that been discussed? Uh, so the topic of tuition has come up. I mean, it is a common question. And the the investment that we're putting into the online uh, virtual courses, it's often the cost is often greater than the cost of delivering uh, something in person. Um, in addition, the students who go to Mac, they're going to receive their credits and their degrees from a world-renowned institution. Um, you know, we're going to ensure the quality. We we want a Global Te- Teaching Excellence Award. There is going to be quality instruction, and you know, some of the the common expenses associated with the university education, like residence. Now for first year students who would have lived in residence, they, they're not going to have to put that money forward in this fall term. And so there's a, a massive, you know, fairly significant uh, chunk of the, the cost of, of coming to university. If you're moving away from home, that's, that's eliminated in the fall term uh, as well. Uh, the federal government's boosted their, uh, their grant program um, and so there's a, there's a number of things that have been put in place, including we have an emergency fund for students who do have need. So I think with all these things in place and the investments we're making in things like Archway, there is value there. And I know it is a common question, but when you look at the entire picture, um, I think it all, it all fits together and it all makes sense. But I understand, I understand that that's, that's, a, that's a, a question that, that's going to come up. You mentioned residents. Have people yet put, I, I, it's been a long time, or enough, a long enough time that I've forgotten. Have people would have, by now, have people put down money, put down deposits on residents? Yeah, so they're all being refunded. And we, we reduced that deposit. We reduced it to what was normally a $600 deposit. It was reduced to 300 and Now all those deposits are being refunded. And there's nothing, and this may be a really stupid question, but there's nothing the university can do for people who have rented houses off campus, right? I mean, that's just, that's all, you're going to have to either move in there and live there yeah. or you're just going to eat it. Yeah, that's a tough one. And, you know, we've, we, we had an initiative for, you know, for students who do need to or want to live near, near campus, we want to help promote those landlords who are more flexible in their lease agreements and are you know, more flexible exit clauses and those types of things. Because even if a student decides now, you know, I, I want to live in Westdale, uh, regardless of whether the only time I need to be on campus if I'm a, uh, you know, an upper year student is, is for a, one lab, um, you know, uh, chances are, as I said, there's, there's a, uh, somewhat of a consensus on, uh, amongst the experts that there's going to be some disruption. There's going to be another wave. And so, um, they may students may want and need to uh, get out of of those types of arrangements if they decide to live away from home and near McMaster. If someone does decide, if they've been accepted and they do decide that they do want to defer to next year, are all admissions or all acceptances deferrable? Uh, it, it's handled on a case by case basis. If a student uh, says they want to defer, but their plan is to go back to high school to take more courses then it's essentially, okay, we're going to restart the, the process and you're going to apply. We'll look at your grades um, once we get those new high school grades. If they're deciding that they simply want, they don't, they're not going to take additional high school credits, 
um, then on a faculty by faculty basis, they will look at those those requests and uh, and consider uh, whether or not to to grant that deferral. I think in general, uh, our approach all the way along has been has, has been to be as accommodating as possible. For but it's not automatic. It's not automatic, but I think you know generally it's uh, unless there's unless they say I'm going back to high school to take a whole bunch more credits. Um, in general, we're going to be very uh, very accommodating um, to to look at a deferral. Now, part of the commentary I hear from parents and students, though, is that you know you're looking at September, you're looking at a situation where uh, potentially there's going to be very limited travel options, which is what students would normally do if they defer for a year, or and or uh, you know there aren't jobs may be scarce as well. So. I think part of the sense here is that many many people who are considering deferral are going to look at it and say, "Well, what are my options here? Maybe maybe taking some courses and getting uh, a bit of a start on my education is a good way to go." You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Read a piece today in the paper, and it, I mean, it really got me thinking about something, and that is this: um, it pointed to research that was done couple of years ago by the University College at London. And the research was into habit forming. How long does it take for a conscious decision or an unconscious decision, but something that we're doing to become habitual, to become a habit, which can be good or it can be bad. And I think if I'm correct, this research was initially geared around New Year's resolutions. How long do you have to do something before it becomes a part of you. That's who you are. That's just your muscle memory, whether physical muscle memory or mental muscle memory. How long does it take for that to become ingrained? And the answer they came up with, and of course, everybody's different. So you could have a day here, a day there, a week here, a week there, but 66 days was the average time that it took for a behavior to become a habit. 66 days. Keep that number in mind. I'll tell you why. May, uh, March 13th was the day that officially most things in this province and a lot of other places shut down. March 13th. Some people went out before, some people went home after. We've mostly been home since, but March 13th, that's 73 days. So we are past the 66 days that it takes to form a habit. And what's happened in those 73 days since? Well, we've talked about this a number of times. I mean, a lot of things personally have probably happened for you. You could probably, I don't have to tell you, you know what's happened for you. But one of the big things that's happened is the government has become very active in giving away money. And we can have the discussion all day long. I think most people would say to some degree or another, it was warranted to some degree or another, we can disagree on what the amount or what the targets or how it's been done, but to some degree or another, you step in if you're the government at this, during this moment of crisis and you help out. I I think that's, we can agree to in some way that was the right thing to do. Here's though the question, and this is what was raised in the paper and really got me thinking. We now have an awful lot of people who for more than the 66 days that it takes to become a habit have been receiving government checks. Some who have no other option, who literally have no other option, and this is the only thing they could possibly be 
doing, accepting to stay alive, to eat, to have a roof over their head. Others, however, and you know this and I know this, and it's anecdotal and non-anecdotal. Other people who look at this and say, this CERB, I'm, oh, I can stay home and I can get paid. Why not? Why not? And after 73 days, we are now well into the wheelhouse of habit. And the, the piece in this paper was, are we creating for ourselves a welfare over work habit for some people, not for, not for everyone. There's lots of people who will still work hard no matter what, but for some people, how are we creating, are we into the sweet spot now where welfare becomes the habit over a need and a desire to go out and work? And I don't know the answer to that one, but I do, I did think as I thought of this today, whether we agree or disagree with how the government has dispersed money to this point, we are now two months into this. We've, there's still stuff going on. We're starting to pull out a little bit. We don't really know what's going to happen. There could be a second wave on and on and on. Can someone please explain to me why it is, or if there's a reason why from this point forward, why a government could not pass bills today? Because we pass bills certainly fast enough to get the money out to people. Can anyone explain to me if there's any reason why we could not say from this point forward, now that we have walked you through the teeth of this crisis, that we will still give you money if you need to have it because you are in difficult straits. But from this point forward, what we're going to give out is a loan. And we will keep track of this and we will be expecting it to be paid back. Not immediately. It might take 10 years. But we are a country now that uh, to say we're swimming in debt, that, that doesn't describe it remotely. We are thrashing around and drowning in debt at this point. And again, we can argue about whether or not everything that's been done has been proper. We knew, we had to do something. There's no question about that. We were going to have bigger deficits. There's no question about that. We were going to have bigger debts. But is it necessary that we continue to thrash around and continue to pour money onto the person on, like to use my analogy of the person drowning uh, as the country? Or could we say we have helped, we've done, you know, what we think we needed to do, but we just don't have an endless pot of money to keep paying it out. So we will loan you now enough money to get by, but we are going to put a time frame on this that you will pay back from this day forward any money that the government gives you. Can anyone tell me why that's a bad idea? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're talking as we have a lot in the last number of weeks about money and about government spending. And as I said a few moments ago, if you were listening, I, I'm not of the opinion that governments of any stripe, a federal or provincial, were wrong to give out money during this very, very unusual, very difficult time. I think that's a role for government to be there as a safety net for those who are in trouble. And a lot of people are in trouble. Therefore, a lot of people deserve some of that government safety net. Heaven knows you pay enough taxes that when you need help, that should be coming back to you. I mean, honestly, I see it as very little different from if you are in a fire and the fire department comes, you've paid taxes to buy that protection 
Well, now you're in a financial fire. And so the government came and sprayed the hose of money to keep you going. Uh, so it, it's not a question of should, is the government wrong for having done what it did? The question is some point, somewhere along the way, it has to stop. But what about, and we talked about this last week with Marvin Ryder, what about the people who still are in trouble and still aren't prepared when the government cuts off? Well, okay, two things. One, we're assuming the government will cut it off. I, that I'm not entirely sure about at this point because every day brings a series of new spending measures. But assuming that it's going to be cut, what's the answer? And I'm saying you can still get money if you are in trouble right now. You are still able to have a roof over your head and food on your plate with some sort of welfare situation or like or in kind kind of thing like that. But from here on, what you get, you're going to repay over a period of time. It could be amortized over 25 years. I don't care. But you're going to, we have to start weeding out the people who don't really need to get the money, but it's free money. Why wouldn't I take the money and the people who really do need the money and the people who really do need the money will repay it. I'm not even talking about interest. I'm just saying it's not going to be free money. It's going to be something to get you by and you'll repay it. And I don't, I don't see anything wrong with this. I wonder if any of you do 905-645-3221 or star nine, nine, Zero zero. Michelle joins us on the line tonight. Michelle, how are you today? I'm good. Um, what do you think about this? Okay, so I have a couple comments. So I'm assuming you personally have never, like, as you work, so through this period, you've not been impacted. You've not lost your job. You're still working. Still working, right? but I have been impacted. Income is down. Yes, I have been, in fact, impacted oh. by my income. Yes. Oh, okay. So... Like, it's just like, how the government has done it is just bizarre. Like, you know, and just throwing money out there, right? But people did need help. Agreed. But listening listening to the lawyer guy who's been on, on, on the same radio station, so I don't see where... People can get away. So if your employer calls you back, you have to go back or you're going to be cut off the SERP. Yeah, well, see, here's the thing, Michelle, and this is where part of what has led to my issue on this one is that we have heard now repeated stories that the government or the bureaucrats have been instructed not to red flag anybody who they have reason to believe is taking advantage of the SERP system. And if we were doing that, where even if we had a chance now to go back and investigate the people that we believe are ripping off the system, that would be one thing. Yeah, but, but we are always that, that that kind of behavior has always gone on. So, like if you, if you're on welfare, you can't afford anything. Like you imagine yourself trying to live on seven hundred and twenty dollars a month to buy food and shelter. That's why you see all this homelessness in the city. But Michelle, and maybe maybe I wasn't clear, if you were on welfare before this, we now have a record. We understand um, that that's something that existed prior to this. I I should have been more clear. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about people who have jumped into the system as a result of this latest cash spending explosion 
Mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. If you're someone who has been working or living on welfare and been dealing with welfare, that we can we can make an exception for that absolutely because you were already there. You're not a you're not a new person who's jumped in and said, "Hey, look at that free money." Okay, but my understanding in listening to the employment lawyer on your okay. show. So if you're on the SERB and you're called back, you cannot say I can't come back because I don't feel safe. Yeah, and that, that. Michelle, I I have to go to a break, unfortunately. Listen, I really appreciate you calling. I don't know the answer to that because I didn't hear that interview. Uh, But you know what? If it was on with Scott Thompson or Bill Kelly, go to the podcast at 900. uh, On the weekend. Oh, on the Uh, weekend, okay. On the weekend, uh, the pocket, pocket employment. Okay. Um, that is on 900CHML.com. You can find the show and you can listen and you can clarify that because I don't know the answer. But Michelle, thank you so much for calling. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900CHML. All right. Let me bring in Don Robertson, owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys and the guy who runs ComChoice Realty and a guy who's involved in so many other things in the greater Dundas area. Thank you for joining us. How are you? Uh, I'm great. Yeah. I, uh, but you're talking to a guy that spent the last 45 years flying without instruments, so I'd be fine doing that. You're talking in a metaphysical kind of way. I am, yes. <laughs> and, and I, for some reason, can hear the producer talking to callers. Well, so your microphone is on in your ear and I can't, so that's okay. Well, you know, this will eventually I'll, get sorted out. You can, you, you can now actually. I know what, now I know what you go through when I'm talking and you're listening to somebody else. And well, if fine. you want, if you want to take over the show, you're more than welcome. I'll, I'll be the guest if you'd like. No, no, no. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, we heard yesterday or maybe the day before sometime over the weekend, it came out that the NHL owners, general managers, governors, league, whatever, have all basically come to an agreement on what they're going to do if they're able to get a playoff tournament going this spring slash summer. And it's a 24-team playoff format tournament where I guess at least some of the rounds are three out of five instead of four out of seven and if you were in the top 24 in the league at the time the league stopped, you get in. I think this is absolutely ridiculous and absolutely goofy because it makes all the games that were played in the regular season up to this point essentially meaningless because almost everybody gets in. But what's your thought on it? I think it's stupid. Um, there's going to be teams that are, in, and I haven't looked at the standings because I, I, I haven't cared enough, to be honest with you, once I heard it. But there will be teams that are, maybe the 24th team has played two more games than the 23rd team. Um, I don't know. But I just don't, <coughs> pardon me, Scott. I think they should cut their losses <coughs> and say, it's call it a day. They're doing it for the TV money. I don't think they're doing it for the sport. They're doing it for the TV money. Somebody's done the arithmetic, and it's always about money with pro sports. But then they're going to, you know, it's going to lag into July. Then they're going to start next season late, which which may be part of the thought process. Uh, I used to have an insider that could tell me the rationale behind this stuff, but I don't anymore. But uh, I perhaps some of the rationale is, look at. We're not going to be at full speed come October anyway. We're not going to be able to fill the buildings. 
We may not be able to let large groups in like we want to until November, December. So why don't we play now, grab the TV money, and then maybe by November when we're going to start again, which means we'll have playoffs in July next summer, but at least then we can get the gate going. And for the longest time, the National Hockey League has been a gate-driven league, much like the CFL. Now, Rogers stepped in with $900 billion on their TV deal. And you know what? Maybe part of the thinking is that it'll be as much fun to watch hockey in July as it is anything else, because if basketball don't go, it might be the only sport running. Let me tell you why 24 teams, in my opinion, are in this thing rather than 16, which would be the traditional group that would be in the playoffs. Because team 18 is Florida, which the NHL doesn't want to lose out on that market. 19 is Nashville. 21 is Minnesota, which is a huge hockey state. 22 is Arizona that Gary Bettman has, you know, fought for that place forever and they never make the playoffs. 23 is Chicago, which is a huge potential market for them. And 24 is the Montreal Canadiens in that group that falls after the 16. So that would not normally be, and you've got three, you got Calgary, Vancouver, and Montreal, three Canadian markets as well. To me, it's so transparently ridiculous that we are just going to, we can't put every team in. That would be too stupid for people to buy, but we can extend this so we can grab many of these markets. We desperately want to have watching. And we don't really care if you should have been there or if the regular season now has become a farce or whatever. Like, why were Maple Leaf fans pulling their hair out during losing streaks in February or January or December or celebrating winning streaks? That were, It meant nothing. Don, it meant nothing. It was ab- it, It's now absolutely without merit. At the time, they didn't know that. No, but it, it, it still... Merit, it had merit when they were pulling their hair out. If it meant something, you would say, I'm sorry, folks, uh, those of you who didn't make the playoffs because you didn't make the playoffs fair and square, you had a chance, you don't get in, but then you lose out on a bunch of uh, uh, good hockey markets, big hockey markets, and some you're hoping will turn into hockey markets or good hockey markets. And here's our chance to jam this thing through and who's going to stop us. Yeah, but the truth is if they're going to play three out of fives, which is sure they, they won't play a two out of three. No, it's three out of five uh, minimum. Gonna, right, but that's going to give um, some of those markets one home game. Well, yeah. I don't know. There will be no home games, really, because it's all going to be just uh, no audience for the most part, I think, unless they've got something else that comes up. But this is going to be neutral, neutral rink, um, no audience, just on TV. So even that doesn't matter. Yeah, good point. Yeah, no, but the TV market, right? If, you're, if you want Phoenix in, and I'm – can assure you that the people in Phoenix are clamoring for hockey in July. They're not interested in December. So no, that, because that nothing is better than hockey when it's 198 get. degrees outside. Well, like they're going to be. Well, yeah, it's like today. Only if you've ever been down to Arizona in the summertime, and I have, Don, you you could you will melt to the floor. The, the, I can't. Fa- well, now then again, we know that this is not going to be played in Arizona. It's going to be played in a neutral site, so that doesn't matter. Nonetheless, I'm quite confident that in the middle of July, the folks in Arizona, as they dodge their saguaro cacti and whatever else they do down there in July, they're thinking about, hey, let's watch hockey. 
but well, you've got you got Gary Bettman who has I mean how many times has Gary Bettman fought for the Arizona franchise to stay there and now you've got a chance to get them into the playoffs whether they deserve it or not you're going to take it he's winning that fight they're still there it still makes just as much sense as when they started but he, it's still there the other thing is I my guess is and and uh, like I said I've had so little interest in it I I know Vancouver are making a pitch for it and Toronto are making a pitch for it but it's either going to have to be in Canada or the U.S. And quite frankly, they could play the entire series in Dundas because nobody can go. So having a smaller rink with no people in it will be better atmosphere than an 18,000-seat arena with no people in it. <clears throat> but I would bet this whole thing's going to have to be played in the States because their illustrious president is not going to have a 14-day quarantine period when you go down there. I mean, they've opened it up like it's like it's over. But if they want to play it in Toronto or Vancouver, and you bring all these guys back from Europe and the Americans in here, are they going to are they going to quarantine for 14 days before they get back on the ice? I'll bet in the U.S. they'll say, "No, come on in. Sorry, right. everything's over." So I think it's have, be in the U.S. Have you made that pitch yet for Dundas? No, but I'm thinking about doing it when the show's over. Now that you say it out loud, yeah, it's like, hey, that that actually makes some sense. Um, hey, you've done it before. I mean, with Hockey Town well, I want or Buffalo played there. That's right. Um, just want to point, just want to point out that the last NHL game played in Hamilton was in jail at Greymeyer Arena. It was indeed, uh, and it did involve the Ottawa Senators. So, and at a time when that was not really an NHL team. Nonetheless, it was <laughs> technically it was an NHL game. Look, I I, I just find this. And I understand what this is about, Don, and you've said it a million times and you're absolutely right. This is about money. It's always about money. Sports is driven by money. Decisions are made about money. But somehow I, I still naively like to cling to the idea that perhaps there is some, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Something more than just money. It's there, but I like to believe, yeah, all that stuff. I like to believe stupidly that there's more than that to it. And then they do something like this and I go, no, there really isn't. There really isn't. I'm sure that if there was a American hockey league team still in Houston and they figured, oh, you know what? Houston's the fourth biggest TV market in the States and it's a TV thing we're doing. Hey, Houston, you want the arrows to play in the NHL playoffs? We'll bump you up for a game or two. Like (laughs) this thing is to me, it's transparently nothing. There's no attempt here, Don, to be, you're right, credible to find a real legitimate Stanley Cup champion because let's go with one other point on this one. Right now, 24th is Montreal. I absolutely guarantee you that they went down to 24 because they wanted Montreal. If we're going to have it as a TV thing, we've got to have Montreal. That's a big TV market. They could have gone to 26. They could have gone to 22. They went to Montreal. But let's say Montreal now, Carey Price shows up. They're not a team that was supposed to be in the playoffs. They don't deserve to be in the playoffs. Same with Chicago. But let's say Carey Price gets on fire and Montreal wins the Stanley Cup. Is there credibility in that? No, there's profit. You're you're dead on. Like, there's a couple things, right? So I I really think this has as much to – and Gary Batman is going to stand at the podium and say, we're doing this for the fans. They deserve to see a champion. I, I could write the speech. So could you, right? Like this is, this is all about finding a champion. We don't want to not have a Stanley Cup champion on any given year, especially on my watch. 
but this is truly all about the unless it's a strike for hockey that's right unless <laughs> unless of course the owners need to make more money and bring in a salary cap it's all about the fans so i still believe that my thought process is that it has more to do with not being able to put 18,000 people in, in, in the various arenas around the National Hockey League come October. And let's start in the end of November and December. They're not losing. It will cost them a lot of money to play in front of empty buildings at the start of the season. Why don't we grab the TV revenue for the playoffs? Because the ratings will be higher. Our uh, TV guys will be happier. Our sponsors will be happier. Right, so we're not we're going to lose it in October. Why don't we just throw it in now? Start later, maybe then we can fill our rinks up in November and December. I think I think yeah, I think the back end of it has as much to do with it as the fans, which is what they'll tell us. Uh, to, the money. to me, this is just so cynical and shows so little regard for any kind of hockey history or credibility or anything else. If one of the teams that should not have been in ends up winning the Stanley Cup, what you've done is you've taken something where you say, we think the fans deserve this, blah, blah, blah. And you've, in my mind, forever tainted it because you didn't earn your spot there. The whole point of the regular season, even though it got cut off, the whole point of the regular season is, and the reason why every game is such a grind and matters now in 2020 and 2019 is because you have to get into the tournament. You have to get in. And if you don't get in and then you get a free pass because you get the, the, the golden ticket, I'm sorry. There, you have no business being there. And if you win, it's a joke. I think the fact that the, the league and the Players Association um, scrapped an entire season one year and delayed it and played a shortened schedule I don't know as they're all that concerned about their credibility. They were worried about credibility. They'd have worked out a deal and they wouldn't have lost a season and they wouldn't have started another season later. The owners hold all the cards because the players love to play. And it, it all come down to money. Then the credibility had nothing to do with it. And I think they're going to stick with their, with their uh, game plan. You know, I think there may be one other thing. Uh, here as well. And, uh, and that is that the, if I understand correctly, and I, I stand to be, you may know this better than I do, but I believe the NHL teams paid their players right through the season, even though they weren't playing. I believe they, got, they did. They got, they got everything but their last paycheck is my understanding. Well, so now you've paid a bunch of players to not play. So I think there's a lot of owners going, you know what, give us some games so we can get, cause you don't pay them in the playoffs. So we can at least get some, some play out of them, some work out of them for the money we gave them. And I'm sure that's a part of it too. But again, Don, as we go to break again, money. I mean, it, you're, you, you're, you're right when you say it every time. It's always money. When, if you want to drill down a little bit deeper, Scott, and I know we're going to go to break here, but if you want to drill down in a little bit deeper, um, the players don't get paid in the playoffs. So what's in it for the players? What's in it for the players? The TV revenue. Why is the TV revenue important to the players? Because they're, the salary cap is all based on income. So they do have a stake in the game here. If they lose, I don't pick a number, on TV revenue for the playoffs, then next, I, what happens with the Toronto Maple Leafs that are up against the salary cap and every other team if the salary cap next year drops $15 million? 
What do the Leafs do? Who do they cut? Contracts are signed. Yeah, what do I, I do with all these players. I don't think the NHL has a, and we, we do have to go, but I don't think the NHL in their collective bargaining, and I'll have to look this one up or find someone who can tell me this. I don't think they have a, uh, a situation where the salary cap can fall. I think it cannot go up, but I'm not sure it can go down because of that exact circumstance. Because now what you do if you've already come up to the cap, I'm not sure, but I don't think that's built into it. Well, you know what? I don't the think owners so. Did, the owners did this thing, so count on it being in there. Perhaps, perhaps. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson is still with us. Don Robertson of the Dundas Real McCoys and a variety of other things. He's here every Monday at this time. And Don, just before the break, we were talking, well, we started talking about the NHL playoff situation, however that's going to be. And of course, it morphs into a discussion about money because of course it does, because that's what this is all about. But there's another money story that is going on in sports right now that is really fascinating that I don't know how this one gets sorted out. And it's Major League Baseball. They're in a similar situation in the sense that they are trying to get back on the field. They're trying to come up with uh, an agreement between the players and the owners. But here's the problem. The players are saying, we're looking right now at an 82-game season, uh, 81-game season out of 162 games. Half the season? Half our pay. Fair enough. Pay us half. We understand. And the owners are saying, yeah, we're going to pay you half, but among the remaining half, we have no fans. We have no beer being consumed. We have no hot dogs being eaten. We have no memorabilia being purchased at the parks. We're way down in revenue. So we want to pay you half or whatever point based on where the revenues are. And the players are balking at this one crazily, saying, no, this is you, your way of introducing a salary cap. How do you work your way through this, Don? How do you come to an agreement when you seem to have two sides that are this dug in and this far apart? Well, they won't have a season. Well, that's true. But, but somewhere I mean, along that, the way... That's, where, that's what it'll come down to. It'll be just like the NHL we talked about before, where they scrapped the season because they wanted a salary cap, and they all they wanted to do was talk about the fans. And I think that's probably the thin edge of the wedge where they do try and work on a salary cap. Saying, we'll pay you a lot of money. We're going to pay you based on the money that we take in. That's pretty good business in most cases, right? And so they'll, it'll be interesting to see how it ends up. Who's the one pitcher, I think in Tampa, that said, I want my full salary because I'm risking my life, yeah. which I think is such a crock. <clears throat> if you really think you're going to risk your life to play baseball this year, there's a dollar number on it. I mean, holy crap. I mean, so I'll do it. I'll risk my life if you pay me enough. He should meet a soldier someday. Yeah. In any, in any event, in any event, it goes down to it's not about risking his life. It's about gouging the owners for all the money they can. And the owners will just say, you know what, we're, gonna, we're tapping out. I mean, the owners aren't going to run their teams so that they can all lose $30 million. Or more. Or $30 million. Don, I mean, that's $30 million yeah, is okay. a salary of a star player. All right, so $150 million. Closer. So, 
And, and, and the only way that Major League Baseball are going to be able to pull this off and satisfy the players is if they can go to the TV networks and say, here's the, here's the predicament we're in. What can you do with your rap, your uh, advertisers? Can you run ruckshot over them and get more money because this is what the players want to get paid? The owners won't do it for the fans. They're going to do it for the love of the game and the money. And again, I hate it when it comes back to money all the time, but in but these testy times, it is about money for the players, as it always is, and the owners that want to get paid $27 million a year if you're a star pitcher or a star football quarterback or running back or whatever it is. But, but the truth be known, if they can't get enough revenue out of the TV guys and the sponsors, it's going to come down to the sponsors, there won't be a season. They, and they I'll say two things. It, I don't think. I'll say two things about that. The first thing is if you squeeze more money out of the sponsors, keep in mind who the sponsors are. They're the advertisers. They are the McDonald's and the Molson's and the Ford's and the whatever else. And if they pay more for advertising, that money just gets passed on to you and me. So even if you don't follow baseball or don't care about baseball, you will end up paying more for all your products that you buy because they have to pay more, which... And that gets to my second point, Don, people are already, they're always a little bit edgy about the fact of how much professional athletes make that that's always part of the thing where a lot of people point to it and say, this is insane. If in the middle of a time when so many people are out of work and scrambling to get by and losing revenue and everything else, if baseball players don't go back. Because they say, you're not paying me enough and I'm only making $15 million this year. I, I really do believe that they run a real risk of doing, not permanent because the, the things always come back eventually, they, it waxes and wanes, but long-term damage to their reputation and to how people look at them and look at that sport. Let me, let me tell you why I, I think that the comparison to the best heart surgeon in the world who might make a million dollars a year versus a rod or the next guy that's making 27 million a year. And to your point, there has never been a better example of value in our society. And I hate to use the American um, uh, uh, reference here, but Dr. Fauci, there are people that are going to, and we watch CNN, we watch Fox news, there is absolutely no question that there are people that would put a value on what he can contribute to our society and our medical uh, doctor, uh, doctors of health and, and all the people in Canada that are doing it. They're, those guys now, in the public perception, are now a premium to our life. A baseball player and a quarterback and a star goalie are not. And it's going to put it in perspective, which is, I don't know if that's how you were getting to your point, but the reality is they are going to look like such bloodsuckers and money grabbers compared to a guy like that that is his value to our society and every guy in his position around the world right now is priceless. And you've got athletes demanding that they get be paid full salaries or or an inordinate amount it's like you know what just go play the game or go home 
if you were no, we don't no no i i i baseball was in big trouble back in 94 after they went on strike people were if you remember when they came back people yep. were sour and there were empty stands and people were really mad at the players and the owners but the players especially because they were like come on you're you're playing a game and you're demanding this kind of money it was only because mcguire and sosa came along with their home run chase that really brought the game back and that was a wonderful fluke for baseball that that happened nonetheless uh if this happens again i don't know what you're going to have to wait for to come along and turn this around but you're exactly right this it's one thing to be striking or to be holding out for more money or making demands or saying stupid things like you're right whatever his name was i can't think of his name off the top of my head now from tampa bay at the best of times when you're saying I deserve $20 million or $30 million a year to play a game when people are okay. But to do that in the middle of a time when people are suffering, Don, is just, is is so tone deaf. It's so tone deaf. We always are going to have athletes that are asking for more money, but surely you have to be, or your agent has to whisper in your ear or something. Be aware of what's going on in the rest of the world. You, you must be, I know that you don't live in the normal world, but if you can't control what you're saying, just shut up and don't say a word to anybody because you're only going to make yourself look like an idiot. And I, and he, that guy did. And, you know, really the, the baseball players association, a much better move would be, look, okay. I know we have short careers, but we're also making an extraordinary amount of money. We're going to go to the owners and say, no. We won't take the 50% or whatever the the revenue is, but what we want is you pay us and we vow that we will take whatever is is over the 50% of revenue and direct that all of us en masse towards COVID relief funding or fighting. That now you've, now, even though you're still being greedy, you've got a winner on your hands. And they won't do it. They're not going to do it because they don't care. You know how many guys, and I have to talk about hockey all the time because it's, it's a little closer to my heart, that when that lost season, players that never came back ended up retiring after that season because they only had one more season in them. And guys that I can relate to that will tell me the story that we did all these all this because Alex Del Vecchio and Bobby Bond did it before us. They could remember that. They're going to say, these kids don't appreciate that lost season we had. It cost me, now back then, you know, two million bucks because they're on the tail end of their career. And, and, and the stars today, they don't care. They don't care about the fourth line left winger. They don't care about the, the guy that only gets put in the game be, for defensive reasons in baseball and to steal bases. They don't care about those guys. They don't care about them. But and Don, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Back and haunt them. It, it will. And there's a big difference because uh, I don't want to say the name because I'm not going to be name dropping here on the show, but I grew up next door to an NHL player who was a really, really good, a star player that people would know the name of. And I grew up next door to this guy because he lived in a normal residential neighborhood and when he was making at the top of at the prime of his career, he was making pretty good money 
for a short career, but it was relative to other people who were doctors or lawyers or whatever else. It wasn't outrageous. He worked a, a job in the off season. And so when guys now say, well, I have to look out for my family and therefore I need $15 million a year. You're not looking out for your, you're not putting, that's not about putting food on the table. That's about having more money than you could spend. If you sign a five or six year deal at that amount of money, that's more money that you could spend in 12 lifetimes, right? There's a big difference between the old days when you were just a well-paid person. And now nobody's buying what they're selling anymore. Right? I agree. Like they're selling, they're, they're selling it, and nobody's buying it. When you get former superstars like for the Toronto Maple Leafs, Johnny Bauer, um, you know, just all the guys that were legends in my eyes, and at, those guys after that, these guys never started making huge money till about ten years ago. I mean, we all remember when NHL players somebody signed a million dollar contract and then somebody in baseball signed a $9 million contract. Well, it's all relevant, right? I mean, it's, the revenue isn't there and everything else, but now they're all make, they're all grossly overpaid. And that, you know, if I was a player today or you were a player, your son was a player, he'd hold out for an extra 600 grand a year. And you would look at your son and go, are you out of your mind? Like you're whole, they're going to pay you 3.2 million. You're holding out for another 600,000. Most guys can't relate to that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Because there's been no sports on TV, essentially, uh, the documentaries have been coming fast and furious. We had the Michael Jordan one that everyone's been talking about. And now last night, ESPN, and I believe it's on TSN tonight, started the first of a two-part series on Lance Armstrong. And I always wonder when we see anti-heroes or villains have these things that they participate in, I always assume that they are looking for any kind of way they can to try to revive their reputation or resuscitate it in some way. Do you think there's ever a chance Lance Armstrong could resuscitate his reputation? No. Well, you've got the same chance Ben Johnson's got. Do you? I mean, I suppose Ben Ben Johnson always, though, came across to a lot of people anyway as, uh, and this may be really unfair, but as a, I thought, as a simple guy who was led astray by Charles, uh, by what's his name? Um, uh, uh, Oh, who was his coach? Um, Charlie Francis. Charlie Francis. But, but... I, I mean, you never got the sense that Ben Johnson was a, a drug-taking mastermind. He was a guy who was a laboratory guinea pig that these guys, Charles, Charles Astafan, the doctor, and whatever else gave him this stuff. Lance Armstrong came across as a much more malevolent kind of, uh, I don't know, a, a guy who was more in charge of this kind of thing. I don't know. M- maybe I'm completely wrong, but that's the impression I think a lot of people had. And so, I mean, look, I think right now, Don, I think a lot of people already forgive Ben Johnson because they say, look, in retrospect, everybody else was doing it too. Now, maybe that falls into the same category for Lance Armstrong. I don't know. Well, I I think there would be more people maybe in Canada rather than the U.S. The U.S. don't care about Ben Johnson or that stuff because they don't want to talk about Carl Lewis. But Ben Johnson, I think, is more perceived as a bit of a mark. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to build the fastest man in the world. 
and you're not going to get caught. And he's saying, okay, well, let's make me go faster. You know, I want to be the world champion. But Lance Armstrong is more of the, you know, American apple pie, and I think he is more culpable, wrong pronunciation, of the situation because everybody held him perhaps to a little bit higher standard, as you alluded to, um, on the whole getup. And he was the American dream. He was the guy that, you know, went over to the Tour de France and kicked the world's butt while doing it. And But I think everybody knew he knew better because he all, often talked about being clean. Yeah, you know, John, the... Ben Johnson the, never did because he said, and it, well... Pardon me, I don't think he ever verbalized it, but he's going, I didn't do anything different than anybody else did. And, and maybe, I think that was, and, yeah. And, yeah. And maybe, and they always pick on the winner, right? Maybe, and I don't know, I mean, I, uh, I don't get on a bike all that often anymore, but maybe everybody else that was second through 10th was doing the same thing Lance Armstrong was, but they only shoot the bird at the top of the wire. They don't give the little ones underneath it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, we got to go. I would, um, I would say what complicates this story, and you know, we may pick this up at another date because I think we don't have enough time for this. What really complicates this story is Lance Armstrong with his Livestrong yellow bracelets and everything. He raised over five hundred million dollars for cancer research, and you know, I, I, I'm not defending a cheater in any way. But that doesn't happen unless he wins those Tour de France's. And so at what point do you say, you know what, the ends justify the means. I'm not there, but I think, a, you, I think you could make a, a, an interesting argument to say, you know, he took drugs, he won the Tour de France, he did what he shouldn't do, but boy, it paid off for a lot of other people, and therefore we can turn a blind eye towards it. Um, to the first question, though, will this documentary revive his reputation? I'm not holding my breath on that one, but... It might, we'll it might in an American audience. Do you know who's a hero when it comes to raising money for cancer? Terry Fox. Lance yeah. not. He pales, pales in comparison. And that's the way it should be. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.